Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hi, Don. J.J., when last we talked, which in the magic of podcast editing was actually only about four minutes ago, Uh but for our (laughs) listeners, it was a week Uh ago, Yes, we teased them with a story that I am just now finding out actually happened. You used to have a wrestling association. (laughs) Yeah. JJ, who has done everything, has now actually exceeded our expectations because today we're going to talk a little bit about Hulk Hogan in a a weird way. And that's the segue. Did you have a wrestling association? Is this true? Yes, it is true. I mean, it's not real. We were in junior high. I mean, I grew up on Hulk Hogan and the Iron Sheik and Andre the Giant and, you know, Jimmy Superfly Snooka. Like, all of those people <laughs> were like my <laughs> heroes. I loved them. And then I watched the cartoon. We used to go to wrestling in Portland. I had no idea any of this existed. Uh, yes, it's all real. <laughs> Wait, you went to wrestling in Portland? If you went to wrestling in Portland, you're in like the banquet of a hotel or something. You're, you're No, it was. It was like we went to like the low end. It wasn't like bar wrestling, essentially. I never got Poor to, man's wrestling. Yeah, I never got to go to like WrestleMania or anything like that. Like, oh, the dream of cage matches and ladders. Did you know it was fake? I mean, I don't really know how to answer that. Because <laughs> when you say, did you know, I'm not sure I would say now it's fake. That is fake. Okay. <laughs> are, I mean, there's fake pieces, yes. But those guys get really hurt and they're amazing athletes. And anybody who says otherwise is going to get right. a right. flying yep. drop kick off the top rope from me. But here's <laughs> the thing. So really, when we were in junior high, we put down cardboard mats. Basically, we found huge cardboard boxes and we put them down in our backyard and we created tag teams and we would wrestle like after school, we would have wrestling matches and we all had theme songs that we would put in our beat boxes, <laughs> like not beat boxes, jute boxes, not beat box. I don't know. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, the tapes. You know, we'd put the tape in, and oddly enough, mine tended to be something that I had recorded off of the radio because I couldn't really afford to buy the music. So I would like yep. put my tape recorder up against the radio and record Beastie Boys' "Fight for Your Right to Party," and then <laughs> I would like come in down the sidewalk, which was our aisle, to the <laughs> cardboard mats, and we would wrestle. So wait, 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 back up. What are you wearing? Please, God, tell me you're in a leotard. No, I couldn't afford a leotard, but it would be, we'd have different <laughs> outfits. We did have wrestling masks, so we would put on masks, nice. and we'd be in, like, shorts, or we'd be in sweats, or different things, and we would wrestle. And What'd you use as the ring? Did you take, like, extension cords and tie them to trees and make a ring? No, there was no ring ring. It was just, we just, like, stayed protected. I don't know why we thought this was safe. Well, we were junior high. But we would use, like, just cardboard boxes that we had broken down as like the mat to protect us from getting dirty in the grass. And I think that lasted about a year and a half when I was like in middle school. Then those same cardboard box area became the space for our breakdancing club because then we yeah. got really into breakdancing for a while. But I was a hardcore wrestler for about a year and a half. <laughs> what was your wrestling name? Did you have a wrestling name? I was just trying to remember that. I don't. This is why like, people always ask about how we prepare for our podcast. We don't really. I should have thought of the name. I don't remember what my name was. What's hilarious is last week you know, in the podcast, we had the fighter pilot. But I do remember at one point that I was Goose and my friend was Maverick, oh, speaking yeah, of fighter yeah. pilots. And so we did the high five that they did on the volleyball court in Top Gun, where you would hit up top and then swing through and hit on bottom. And we thought that yeah. was so cool. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, if you want to give JJ a wrestling name, just tweet or Instagram <laughs> hashtag 
JJ wrestling name. <laughs> I would and we love will feature a wrestling name. If you really do it, I would if you love hashtag JJ wrestling name <laughs> on a future episode of the podcast, we will actually go through them. So I think the staff, I'm looking at Tim, the staff should choose the staff JJ's should choose. wrestling well, name. Well, and then I want to add to that. You can still do the same hashtag JJ's wrestling name, but I would love to know Don and I's tag team name. What are we? Oh. What, that would be the. <laughs> well, listen, hey, speaking of wrestling and your hero, Hulk Hogan. This week's interview is with Ryan Holiday. Ryan yeah. Holiday wrote a book called Conspiracy, and he actually got fascinated by this Peter Thiel, Hulk Hogan, Gawker lawsuit. He was like, how did that happen? He got to know Peter Thiel a little bit, did a bunch of interviews with him, did interviews with Hulk Hogan, did interviews with all these guys, and wrote a whole book about that whole thing. And it's weirdly a business book. Yeah, <laughs> It's a book about yeah. strategy. It's a book about... Yeah. How somebody does something wrong to you, and in five years you take them out of business. It's a, <laughs> it's a fascinating departure for Ryan, yeah. and it's a little bit of a fascinating departure for us. But it is so such an interesting story. That's another hashtag. What I learned from that podcast. <laughs> yeah, just hashtag it's just that. such a fascinating story. Well, it's a freaking page turner. I actually picked it up and kind of started yeah, in the middle. Yeah. And 20 minutes later, I'm locked in because it's like Hulk Hogan. You know, here's when he first found out there was a sex tape. His wife came to him and said, "What is yeah. this?" Did you sleep with that girl? It's in the book, yeah. in a business yeah. book. You know, it's got a businessy book kind of cover, so maybe you can get this and your spouse won't know what you're actually reading. <laughs> <laughs> the book is Conspiracy by Ryan Holiday. Anyway, I want to get right to the interview. Here's my conversation with Ryan. Ryan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Hey, listen, this is an interesting pivot for you. The book is called Conspiracy, Peter Thiel, Hulk Hogan, Gawker, and the Anatomy of Intrigue. It is a kind of a thrilling little page-turner. I don't know how to describe it. It kind of feels a little bit like a legal thriller, but there's a business book embedded in this thing, and yet it's a pivot for you. And I'm wondering, how in the world did you get interested in this specific story? And you've got a business brain, and so you're always thinking about growing brands and growing businesses and creating products that last and perennial sellers and all that kind of stuff. I got to know first, how in the world did this story just intrigue you? To me, it's this sort of thing ripped from history, right? This idea of Peter Thiel, who's this billionaire. You have Nick Denton, who's this gossip merchant. And they somehow find themselves locked in almost mortal combat with each other. And at the end, only one emerges. I just found that to be so epic and unreal that I was endlessly fascinated by it. It's, it's clearly sort of an incredible story, almost on the Shakespearean or Greek level. So I was fascinated by it on that sense. And I would have loved for, you know, a Michael Lewis or someone like that to tackle it. And so when the story kind of fell in my lap, when I had access to Peter Thiel, who's, I think, the main character in many ways, it didn't occur to me that I could be the one that would write it. But I'm always looking for a challenge. And it just sort of happened. And when it happened, I thought, well, this is going to be extremely hard and extremely difficult. But if I come out the other side, I'll be a much better writer and storyteller for it. I have no doubt about that. I think career-wise, you already had a great name, but this puts you in a little bit of a different category. Before, though, we get into how you met Peter and you started writing the book, started thinking about it, explain to people what happened. Because what I know about what happened is Gawker basically outed Peter Thiel as a gay man, and this would have been years and years ago. He didn't want that to happen. He was out to his friends and family, but he really felt like that was an invasion of privacy. He didn't see himself as a public figure. Nick Denton, who had a, I mean, a medium-sized company called Gawker, basically a gossip rag on the internet, printing anything that would get clicks, outs Peter Thiel. This really ticks him off. 
and Peter may have taken legal action. I don't know, but it didn't work. And then he basically sued Gawker or funded Hulk Hogan's campaign after something similar happened with Hulk Hogan. And it was a proxy war at that point. Is that the basis of what happened? It is. In 2007, he's outed. And then for the next five years, he basically just thinks. We tend to think that you know business people are reactive, that they think on their feet. You know, Peter really sort of steps back and goes, okay, what can I do here? I feel like I was grievously mistreated. I don't like what happened. I don't think people should be able to do this. It's not technically illegal. So what can I do about it? And so for nearly five years, he just sort of schemes and plans, ends up assembling a team. He gets a lawyer and an operative like his number two, sort of explore different options. And then in 2012, Gawker runs another egregious violation of privacy, in this case, the illegally recorded sex tape of the wrestler Hulk Hogan, which had been recorded via a secret camera hidden in the wall of a bedroom. Peter approaches him and says, look, you've threatened to sue Gawker for what they did to you. He does this all through an intermediary. He says, you've threatened to sue Gawker. I'm a wealthy businessman. I'm willing to pay for you to take this case as far as you can possibly take it. And he approaches a number of people with the same plan, essentially sort of encircling Gawker in this net. And it's not until 2016, so four years after the tape first runs, that they win a verdict in Pinellas County in in Florida. They get the case in front of a jury. They win $140 million, which instantly bankrupts Gawker, and it ceases publication a few months later. And nobody knows Teal did it until he's later unmasked. And that's the part that we know. And it probably even, it might have been a bigger story that they found out Teal funded it, or we found out Teal funded it, than it was even the story of the sex tape, because we've heard those stories before. I want to go all the way back, though, to the five years of meditating and thinking. How well do you know Peter Thiel? Are you friends with him? We know so little. I think he really came into my consciousness more through the Republican National Convention when, you know, here's this gay man befriending Donald Trump, supporting Donald Trump, speaking at the Republican National Convention. Talk about confusing, right? Tell me a little bit, how do you know Peter? And then I also want to dial in on what was going on in that five years. Was this just a hey, that was a slight, and I don't appreciate that. And five years later, he saw through Hulk Hogan the chance to stop an injustice. Or is this a man who broods night and day about his enemies? I want to know that too. So Teal is sort of this enigma, right? I wouldn't say we are friends. I would say he's talked to me about this case more than he's probably spoken to anyone else about it on the planet. I'm the only person that he talked to, so I got this sort of exclusive access to him through the book. And he's just this fascinating character. You know, he's one of those thinkers that sort of goes to first principles. He thinks of everything completely from scratch. So the fact that he was a gay man speaking at the Republican National Convention, to him wouldn't have been a contradiction. He would have said, well, I agree with these people on these issues. I disagree with them on these issues. And on the whole, I agree more than I disagree. So I'm going to do it. The fact that Trump was the most controversial candidate in probably American history the fact that he was so widely disliked by many, many people, the fact that everyone in tech was more or less entirely opposed to Donald Trump, you know, these things just wouldn't have creeped into Teal's mind, just as the idea of suing a media outlet into oblivion uh, secretly for 10 years wouldn't have struck him as particularly odd either. You understand that we're all tribal. Studies have shown that people will willingly believe something that's not true even though they know it's not true, in order to associate with a tribe. You're describing a man, Peter Thiel, I'm really kind of fascinated by this, 
who seems to not think that way. His tribe may not be the gay community. That's not his tribe. Economic conservative, fiscal conservatives are not his tribe. Religious right is definitely not his tribe. Is he a man without a tribe? And what I'm really asking is, what is this man's worldview? He's sort of a lone wolf thinker who comes up with an individualist take on every issue. Hmm. You know, he, he's been famously described as a contrarian, but that almost does it in an injustice, right? A contrarian takes what everyone else thinks and thinks the opposite. I think Thiel takes the issue and looks at it clearly, objectively, through his own lens and comes up with a view that oftentimes, by nature of being fresh and original, is very different or in some ways opposed to what most people think. But I don't think he's being different for the sake of being different. Maybe the question isn't what's his worldview. What is the end that he is wanting the world to come to? I mean, we talk about Elon Musk. You can point to some specific things. You can say Elon Musk wants to create a habitation on Mars where people can live in case we do terrible things to the planet, these kinds of things. There's an end that you see all his work heading toward. Does Peter Thiel have that kind of end? I asked Thiel that. I said, Elon Musk wants to put a man on Mars. What is your life mission? He was like, I know this is going to sound strange, but I feel like the main thing that I've aimed all of my efforts at my entire life has been this fight against political correctness. And, and again, that does seem a little strange. Yeah, it doesn't seem inconsistent with going after Gawker, actually. So his belief is that creativity, insight, innovation, genius, breakthroughs, whatever, the things that create the future, he feels like these are often the result of people who think very differently or people who think from first principles from scratch. So he's made this remark. He's like, what does it say that a good portion of Silicon Valley technology and entrepreneurs have some form of Asperger's. He says, why does it require some form of mental you know, disease or disorder, whatever you want to call it? Why does it require some sort of hardwired quirk in their brain to get them to see opportunities that other people can't ordinarily see? And so I think his point is that when we're all thinking the same, when we're all thinking the way we're supposed to be thinking, we're missing potentially life-changing world-changing insights, I think he came to believe that Gawker was an enforcer of this political correctness, not in the conservative sense of the word, not in the, you know, don't say that you're going to hurt people's feelings, but in the Gawker universe, if you make a mistake, they make fun of you. If you have a secret, they will find that secret and embarrass you for it. If you try something big and fail, they will mock you for it. If you have strange beliefs or, you know, you're not completely socially adept or masterful, they will mock you for that. And so he came to believe that this was its own form of political correctness, this own sort of constraint on society's creativity, just in the sense that, I mean, think about it, Gawker wasn't outing him as being gay because they thought there was anything wrong with being gay. In fact, the founder is gay. What they were pointing to was that it was weird that Teal wasn't public about being gay as if this was their business. And so I think he came to see Gawker as this sort of cultural evil, which sounds, again, extreme to most of us, but he saw them as representing, in the way that an Elon Musk might see some obstacle, some bureaucratic obstacle on his you know, journey to Mars, Thiel saw Gawker as an obstacle in his own intellectual and business pursuits. What you're describing to me, and perhaps what it was, was just really shallow cultural decay 
Yes. Is that part of what he didn't like, that this lack of sophistication, this lack of nuanced thought, this sugar that we're all putting into our brains all the time, is that part of what he would fought too, you think? I think it is. And then, you know, I think part of it was a purely a moral sort of stand for justice as he saw it, you know. So they out him. It doesn't have any real negative impacts on his life one way or another. But not everyone is a billionaire, right? I think he came to see them as sort of a representation of bullying in many forms. Sort of came to see that what he was doing as him standing up for the little guy, even though he's very much not a little guy. He's not a binary thinker, is he? He doesn't think no. there's two opinions about anything or two right opinions about anything. I think that's right. And I think he changes his mind constantly. You know, one of his friends would describe him as someone who has sort of a Mexican standoff going on in his brain at any time between all these contradictory ideas. But because he's not necessarily wedded to any one thing, he's just very undogmatic in how he thinks. Is he driven by any sort of ethics? Does he have an ethical code? Well, look, even if you think about this conspiracy, many people criticized what happened. They said, look, this is a vindictive billionaire destroying a media outlet. We should all be very alarmed. This is, you know, goes to the rising power of influence and wealth these days. But it strikes me that a billionaire who has been deeply wounded by a media outlet deciding to sue them legitimately in a court of law, break no laws in the process, and simply pursue this thing via the justice system. And the only thing that he didn't do was tell Gawker that he was, in fact, behind this strikes me as probably one of the most benign ways that a billionaire could throw their weight around. And this was an explicit choice. But, you know, he said, look, we told ourselves very early on that we would only do things that were legal. We would only do things that were ethical. There was any range of options that they had given his limitless resources. But they chose this option and they chose for instance, not to make this a First Amendment issue. They fought it over the right to privacy, not, say, defamation or libel, because they wanted to set a very specific precedent here as it pertained to you know, our right to be left alone rather than our right to speak our minds. I'll be back with the rest of my interview with Ryan Holiday in just a moment. Listen, if you're looking to get a really great return on a marketing investment, the best thing you can do is come to a StoryBrand live marketing workshop. We've got one coming up in Nashville in April. Here's how it works. We actually spend about a day and a half clarifying your message. That is coming up with seven messaging points that you can use in all manner of marketing collateral. The actual words people need to read in order to get interested, engage, and even buy your product. We're going to come up with those words together in a room in Nashville, Tennessee. Then we're going to take the second half of the second day and we're going to create the essence of a marketing funnel. We're going to give you an outline of a marketing funnel. We're going to wireframe a website. We're going to talk through lead generators. We're going to come up with some subject lines for emails. Everything that you need to execute to have a marketing plan that works. If that sounds like something you and your company need to go through, register today at storybrand.com. We would love to see you at a live marketing workshop soon. Just register at storybrand.com and we will see you in late April. I'm fully for what he did. I mean, I want the listeners to understand what he could have done. What he could have done was hire a bunch of private investigators to find out dirt on everybody who worked at Gawker from the top to the bottom and release a bunch of garbage on them, starting his own website and just wrestling around in the mud with the pigs. 
he had the money to do that. In fact, it probably would have been cheaper to do that. But that's not what he did. He did, I think, an act of justice and an act of civil service. I think he saw the world and said, this is not the world I want to live in. These people are putting smut into the brains of the average American, which I think is one of our big problems right now as a country. He's a fascinating guy to me. I'm not saying I, I totally understand him or I'm totally for him, because I think he's also really complicated. But there's a business lesson. There's other stuff in here that coincides so much with the, I don't know, the framework of narrative, the age-old 2,000-year-old formulas that all these screenwriters and we at StoryBrand you know, believe are the key to compelling a human brain, the key to getting people's attention. And Thiel used these ideas, if you will, maybe intuitively, maybe just strategically when he sat down with a team and tried to figure out what would work. He used these things to take down an enemy. Your book just came out, and I just got my copy, so I was sharing with you before we started recording. It's intriguing, and I can't wait to get off this interview and just keep reading it. But do you get into some of the sort of business principles and strategic principles of captivating people's attention and controlling a narrative. Do you get into that in the book? Yeah, I mean, to me, this was this story was an excuse to sort of do a, an extended meditation on power and strategy and narrative because what Teal did, typically someone does something wrong to us and we just react, right? We attack them where they attacked us. And this would have been Teal, you know, litigating uh, Gawker's outing of him or publicly condemning them, or as Nick Denton, the founder of Gawker, said, you know, why didn't he just write his own op-ed response to us? I think what Thiel realized was that you can't beat someone in a battle of words on the terrain of their choosing. And so instead, he was meticulous, he was patient, he probes for weakness, he finds something that Gawker has done wrong, where what they've done is really indefensible, right? The idea of running this sex tape that was recorded illegally without someone's consent is not only like impossible to defend in the court of law, but increasingly in the public eye, as our views about privacy have changed, was really difficult for Gawker to defend in the court of public opinion as well. And then what I think was so brilliant about what Thiel did is that he didn't leave it simply at this lawsuit. He also funds and pursues a number of other lawsuits. Like for instance, he found in the course of the Hogan case that Gawker had a great number of interns that they didn't pay. And it's technically illegal to have unpaid interns. And so he and his lawyer fund a different lawyer who fund a class action lawsuit on behalf of these unpaid interns. Well, as it turns out, Gawker had written publicly many times criticism of other companies who had exploited unpaid interns. When he starts out, Gawker is this sort of rebellious but well-liked counterculture website. But by the end of it, Thiel has maneuvered them. He's controlled their narrative better than they have into being this sort of bully, this unethical, this exploitative operation that hurts other people, that doesn't play by the rules. And this was a slow, you know, narrative shift that ensued over, you know, five or six years. And it's by the sort of deliberate maneuvering of Teal that this happens. So by the time they get in that courtroom in Florida, the jury is just appalled at these people and disgusted. And the reason the verdict is so large is that they were trying to send the message. And it was set a precedent. Yeah. Right. And it was the message that Teal had put in their minds to send. 
let me pretend I'm your publisher and you turn yeah. in this manuscript to me because I'm trying to understand your motivation and what we're going to get out of this book. I'm your publisher. You turn in your manuscript and I say, Ryan, here's what I think you should call this book. Mm-hmm. How to take somebody down. Yes. Peter Thiel, Hulk Hogan, Gawker and the Anatomy of Intrigue. Push back. Why do you not want to call it that? Or is that not what it is? Or do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, well, you're giving me some bad flashbacks because I had to have this exact <laughs> conversation with my, my publisher. No, there was a huge amount of fighting about it. You know, my publisher thought this was much more a story of power, like of a big guy exercising his power. And I saw it as something fundamentally different. I saw it as, in some ways, it's not David versus Goliath, but it is two Goliaths going at it and one using leverage and creativity and out-of-the-box thinking to take down the other one. One thing that struck me, I read Peter's book. He has a wonderful book called Zero to One. And he says that a startup is basically a group of individuals who come together to try to change the world. He says, that's what a startup is. You have this idea, this theory, and you're trying to sort of make your dent in the universe. And it struck me that in some ways, that's what he did with Gawker, that it was this sort of conspiracy between a a handful of people, Teal, his number two, Hulk Hogan, the lawyer that they hired, and a few other individuals who were really conspiring to do this thing. And although it was an act of destruction, right, they were trying to destroy Gawker, there was an element of creativeness in that destruction. So it's creative destruction. They're trying to change the world rather than simply remove something from the world. This book was bigger than trying to destroy someone. It was about this idea of a conspiracy, this group of individuals trying to do this impossible thing where they're hopelessly outnumbered or outmatched. And, you know, look, very simply, as I was thinking about titles, I looked around and I was like, there's got to be like a million books titled conspiracy, right? Conspiracy theory is this phrase we throw around all the time. But it turned out there's lots of books about conspiracy theories but very few books about an actual conspiracy because we never know that they've actually happened, right? When was the last time someone who did a conspiracy was like, oh yeah, that was me, let me tell you about it. And so I felt like I had the opportunity to tell a story that hadn't been told before. So I pushed back very hard when my publisher tried to make it a book like a relatively sort of common book, in my opinion. The word conspiracy, you're using it in a little bit different context than maybe some of our readers might have uh, understood it. When I think conspiracy, I think UFOs landing on the planet, government hiding things. You usually think of things that maybe aren't actually true, but a lot of people believe in those things. Then there's the other kind of conspiracy, the conspiracy to you know, Hamlet and his uncle, those kinds of conspiracies. And you're talking about the Hamlet and his uncle kind of conspiracy, talking about the behind the scenes, quiet, oh, mutiny or overtaking of power or creating something. That's the sort of conspiracy you're talking about in this book, right? Yeah. So we are awash in conspiracy theories, which are really just like sort of imaginative guesses about what may or may not be going on in the shadows. It's weird that we're so obsessed with conspiracy theories and people know relatively little about actual conspiracies, right? The conspiracy to to fix the 1919 World Series or the counterintelligence conspiracy to mislead the Germans or the Nazis about where the D-Day invasion would land, right? How did we convince Adolf Hitler that we would be landing in Calais rather than at Normandy? It was a comprehensive multi-year conspiracy with intelligence and counterintelligence and leaks to newspapers and dummy troops and dummy ships and all these things. 
it was an actual conspiracy, right? The assassination of Julius Caesar is a conspiracy to restore the Roman Republic, right? The Count of Monte Cristo, right? Fictional, is a conspiracy to get revenge. And so I'm fascinated by those kinds of conspiracies. It doesn't get me that excited to wonder whether there's UFOs or not. Okay. As you studied this, you're a business guy. You have a small company. You have a reputation. There's things that you're trying to build. I want to get into what the actual tenets of a conspiracy are. I'm going to get into that in a second. But did you find yourself thinking, you know, there's principles here I can employ in everything that I'm trying to build as you unfolded this story? Yeah. I mean, look, many people were opposed to what Teal did here. And I feel like they were so opposed in principle that it blinded them to what actually happened. You know, he would say the media just wanted to teach lessons rather than learn lessons. And, you know, I think also his support of Trump turned a lot of people off, right? You know, Trump is not particularly popular. So that turned a lot of people off. It struck me, for instance, on the most basic level, that that is a very sort of naive or ignorant take on things, right? Here, Teal methodically plotted and undid a previously bulletproof enemy. If you really don't like Donald Trump, maybe there's lessons here in what Teal did to legally take down Donald Trump or to take down any sort of big, invincible adversary that you feel like is making the world a worse place. And so to me then, what I was so fascinated by is, yeah, learning those lessons and sort of trying to reduce it into a series of steps so we could really figure it out rather than just sort of blindly condemning or embracing what happened. You've got three parts in the book, the planning, the doing, and the aftermath. And I'm imagining the metaphor or the story or the narrative that you're weaving, of course, is the Peter Thiel, Hulk Hogan, Gawker kind of story. You start with, in the planning, the inciting incident, deciding to act. Is this a step-by-step how-you-do-this book? I didn't try to write a how-to book, but I tried to show you exactly how he did it, right? So I tried to break it down. And this framework of the planning and the doing and the aftermath, this is from Machiavelli, who 600 or so years ago was himself writing about how conspiracies work and trying to sort of open people's eyes to them rather than sort of, we tend to instinctively turn away from the nastiness of these things. And I think that's a mistake because then we don't learn the lessons. And so I want people to read this book and understand what happened, if only from a defensive perspective, right? If you think that what Teal did is really bad, well, then you have any desire to protect the media. You run a media company. You want to make sure you're not conspired against. I hope you read this book and you go, oh, here's all the mistakes that Gawker made, or here's all the vulnerabilities they left exposed. And then you close those in your own business or in your own life. Gawker was in a story war against Peter Thiel. They were both weaving a narrative, and Thiel won. Why did Gawker's narrative not work? How did they go from sort of the social WikiLeaks, uh, you know, I don't know if I want to call them that, but you know what I'm getting at, to a just known as the kind of smut, we're going to expose your privacy, we don't care about you, we're going to rot the brains of the average American. How did they lose the narrative? Well, I think there's a few things, one of which comes directly from Teal. Teal would tell me, he's like, look, the problem is that Gawker argued the law and we argued the facts. And what he meant by that, I think it goes to your point about a story war. Gawker at first felt like they didn't need to explain or justify this in any way, right? That this was just their First Amendment right and you might be disgusted by it, but you just had to take it. And Teal found that legally that was just untrue, right? That they had, in fact, potentially violated 
a number of civil statutes in Florida and that they could be held accountable for them. And then as it approached trial and in the courtroom, what Teal and Hogan and his attorney, Charles Harder, were arguing over and over again was that this is the kind of thing that can't happen in a civilized society, that no media outlet should be able to grossly violate someone's privacy. That if you're having sex in the private bedroom, whether that's an illicit affair or a totally legitimate relationship between a spouse, or whatever, no one wants cameras in their bedrooms. And so by sort of painting Gawker as the people who were trying to put cameras in your bedroom, he put them on the defensive. And it's not to say that Gawker didn't have a good defense. They could have had a good defense, but they so believed that this was a matter of the First Amendment, that media outlets can publish anything they want under any circumstances, that they really never rose to the challenge. They never really argued about it. And when they did argue about it, they argued about the First Amendment, again, forgetting that Teal had made this strategic choice to make this issue an issue of privacy rather than freedom. And so in the story war, Gawker's story was just completely uncompelling. It was, in fact, deeply disturbing, right? And again, whether you like that or not, that's what happened. There had to be some kind of law, though, that the jury was trying to uphold. I'm thinking about a couple things here. One, I'm thinking about Mueller versus Trump, if that ever comes to be. And I'm thinking about the state versus O.J. Simpson, where you had the law probably would have convicted O.J. Simpson, but at least according to the narrative that's told about the case and what we've seen of the case, they won a story war, the Simpson defense. They, they turned it into an argument about racism and police brutality and all these kinds of things, and they ended up winning over a jury. You know, we can't get away from juries have hearts, minds, they are able to be manipulated, they are not entirely rational thinkers, versus there is such a thing as law. I can't remember the senator who said, we are all entitled to our own opinions, we are not entitled to our own facts. Do you see the law having won in this case, or do you see the narrative having affected the jury to bend the law toward Peter Thiel's side? I think it's a little bit of both, but I think fundamentally, and it is interesting, before Teal was unmasked, the New York Times had a panel of experts speak about the jury. They ran this sort of series of, of op-eds around it. And two out of the three sort of legal minds that they selected said that there was very little precedent set in this case besides the fact that you can't run sex tapes without permission that you can't run this kind of content. I mean, the jury was actually really creating the law. That's one interesting thing about this case. They were going to set precedents. Not at all. No, no. The law is very clear. Like, for instance, a media outlet couldn't run, and this is one of the cases they discuss as precedent in a lot of the arguments. Let's say there's a hidden camera in the dressing room of a clothing store. That's not newsworthy, right? Those people have an expectation of privacy there. Although a celebrity is famous and much of their life is subject to the public concern in a way that an average person might not be, does the public have a right to Hogan's medical records? Does it have a right to, again, him having sex in a private bedroom where he does not believe there to be any cameras? The argument there was that Gawker violated his privacy in running this tape and that there were a number of things they could have done differently. You know, for instance, they could have blurred out his genitals in the tape, or they could have simply written about the tape, but not run the tape itself, or any number of, of other things that Gawker didn't do because they believed that they were just able to publish essentially anything and everything that they chose. What's the main moral of the story? What's the idea that you want readers to leave with? And I'm sure there are a few, 
but what would you say is the resonant ring that you want in their ears? So the main argument for me is not whether Docker should have run the tape or not run the tape or whether Teal should have pursued them and won or lost or any of this. To me, the main message is here this person was sort of sitting there struggling, trying to come to terms with something he felt to be gravely unjust. And then he took coordinated, secret, but ultimately effective action, and he changed the world as a result of it. And to me, that's what a conspiracy is, right? There's good conspiracies and bad conspiracies. And we can debate whether this was one or the other. But what we can't argue with is whether this was a successful conspiracy or not, because it objectively was. And I think we kind of live in this time where we want to sign petitions about things. We want to complain about things on social media, but we don't want to do the down and dirty work of even, as you put it, the word story war has this negative connotation, right? War is bad. But the battle of ideas is not necessarily always a pleasant place. And it's not always going to Sometimes you've got to sort of win people over through these sort of somewhat secretive means. So to me, the book is sort of a meditation on maybe the rehabilitation of this word conspiracy. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So that's how the uh, sausage gets made, JJ. That's how you take down... The enemy. Yeah. Wow. If I ever offend you. <laughs> I know now. Five, yeah, you know how to do it. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm on Peter Thiel's side on this one. Yeah. I remember when we were shooting that movie, Blue Like Jazz, some of the stars of the movie, you know, had photos of them online that had been photoshopped and things like that. And it was just mind-numbingly unfair. Yeah. You know, we don't think of these people as human beings. They are human beings. I'm all for Peter Thiel going after him. I'm glad Gawker's gone. I wish we could go after him more and more. It's just not right. Yeah. It's not right to have a story told about you that you don't want told about yeah. you. Good for Hulk Hogan. Hope he does great things with $140 million. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> JJ, talk about a pivot. Next week's episode could not be any more different. Yes. It's actually Ron <laughs> Clark, who is a world-renowned teacher out of yes. Atlanta, Georgia. Good friend of Oprah Winfrey. She kind of has fallen in love with this guy. Ron actually was a teacher, and he noticed that like his fellow teachers at his school just didn't have energy or passion for their job, and it drove him crazy. So he went and he started his own school. And the purpose of the school was to educate kids, but also find the best teachers in the world, bring them in, and then bring in hundreds and even thousands of other teachers to study the best teachers in the world in order to surmise best practices to make education better. It's unreal. Talk about putting just a weight on your shoulders and saying, I'm going to change the world. Yeah. He's got boundless energy. The first time I heard about him was actually through a viral video of him dancing with his students. Yeah, that's right. So it's a coordinated dance when he actually like learned all the moves and yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's amazing. It's just insane. So that's one of the keys to changing the world, have boundless energy. Oh, yeah. But he wrote down the rest of the keys to running a successful organization in his book, Move Your Bus. And that's what I was interested in because you got a bunch of business leaders and he's just created this incredible organization. And I was curious, how did you do that? How did you create this organization? Yeah. How do you keep the right people on the bus? How do you keep them all moving? How do you get rid of people you don't want? Yeah. I mean, it's just a fascinating conversation. Here's a little tease of my conversation with Ron Clark. Ron Clark. 
Number one is about who you hang out with. If you hang out with positive people who are going above and beyond, you tend to fall into that type of category. If you hang out with the negative people, you tend to be negative. There are some people in every organization, they want to point out everything that's wrong. One lady said to me, she said, well, I'm just pointing out everything that needs to be fixed. And I said, well, if you're not the one that's going to fix it, you're just making the problem worse by complaining about it. There is no perfect business. There is no perfect place to work on earth. And if you're so unhappy where you are, then we wish you well. Go find that perfect place for you. But every place has problems. People come from all over the world to see my school every week. We're not perfect either. We have issues too. I mean, there is no perfect place. And so I encourage people, if you want to be a runner, hang out with people who run, listen to what you talk about, stay positive, don't stay negative. You want to make sure that you're trying to be a positive member of the team, not a negative member of the team. There's things that we can all do. Don't be a victim. I love education. I love teachers. There is something systemically wrong with our education system. And I think it starts with, I think, teachers not being respected and not being cared about enough and not being even financially compensated for the work that they're doing and yeah. all that kind of stuff. So it's great to have a guy. I just want to shine a big old spotlight on him and say, hey, watch what this guy's doing. Anyway, make sure that you subscribe to the podcast and listen next week to my full interview with Ron Clark. JJ, good talking to you again. Yes. You are back in the studio next week. I am. We'll be together. It'll be good to see your smiling face. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's new record, Dive Deep, on Spotify or iTunes. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. <laughs>